I want to thank you for joining me on this journey as we look at this last week of Jesus before the cross. And if you were with us yesterday, you know we talked about Jesus' triumphal entry into the holy city, Jerusalem, and how this was God's plan. This wasn't just an ordinary day in the life of the people. It wasn't an ordinary trip for the feast. But this was the plan of God unfolding and the details in which show us that this is God's plan unfolding. So God, so Jesus going to the cross isn't something that just happened, that it's the plan of God. And so we're looking at this question, why did Jesus die? And that's the one we're looking to answer. And so the first part of that is we need to understand that why Jesus died was part of God's plan. And so today I want us to get in the second piece of this is after he enters into the Holy Spirit, he goes to the temple. And so we're going to look at this story today and kind of what we can pull and glean from this in, in answering the question, why did Jesus die? And so what we have is when he came into the city, he goes into the temple and he begins to look around and assess. And if you're familiar with this story, this is where Jesus cleans the temple. Um, many people see, uh, you know, as a kid, you've probably seen pictures or people are very familiar with this story because this is where Jesus makes a whip and he drives out the, the animals and he turns over the table of the money changers and he lets the pigeons, uh, turns over the seats of the ones selling pigeons. And so it's interesting, this story it comes in. And so there are those who sold and then there's those who bought. There are the money changers. There are those who sold pigeons. And he wouldn't even let anybody carry anything. Now, this was a drastic move from Jesus because he had been in the temple several times. He'd been a part of this feast and seen this. But there's something unique to this moment. And the thing is in this is that Jesus is revealing to us something in him doing this and his timing in doing this. Uh, and for us to kind of look at this, I want us to, to kind of look at what this temple is and what it means and, and the different elements of that. And so when we see the temple, it originally um, comes from the tent of meeting. And this is where this original idea comes from. When Moses was leading the children of Israel out of Egypt and they went to the mountain, Mount Sinai, that God gave Moses a picture of the tent of meeting. And so when Moses got done off the mountain, he put this together, he built it. Um, and it had different facets and different pieces to it. And so Moses put this together. And so, um, and then we have that. And then later on, David gets in his heart to build the temple. Now, the interesting thing about when David built the temple is it there's this historical reference that happens and it's kind of neat to what Jesus was doing. But when kings would fi had finished their conquest, when they had brought peace to their region, they would then go about and build a temple to their God, their God that had brought them peace. Now, this was traditional in the time, but it's cool to think about it this. And then here's Jesus at the time where he is conquering the, our greatest enemy, when he's conquering death and he's crushing, he's fulfilling the, the prophecy in Genesis where he's crushing the serpent's head. Like where this begins to happen, David symbolized, shows us the preparation of this and him building the temple for this reason. Like he had brought peace to his region and now he wants to build the temple. And so we have the tent of meeting that we had the temple. Now, during that time, the temple had been destroyed and been rebuilt. Uh, we had Solomon who built the first one. Then we had um, uh, Nehemiah who came in and built the second one. And then we had Herod who had built the third one. Now, this one was built by a pagan king, basically a pagan king. And so this is what's the temple they're in right now. It's not the one that David built. 
But um, this kind of brings us a question, like, what was the purpose of this temple? And um, it's good for us to understand that. You see, in ancient times, the temples were set up as a home to their gods. And so they would symbolize this by putting an idol in that temple. So the idol in the temple symbolized the, the temple that it was, and they would go there and they would pay homage to this god. Well, in Jewish tradition, they would journey to the temple and offer sacrifices, And temple life and home life were not equal. They were pretty separate. And so who you were at home wasn't who you were at the temple. It was quite different because, you know, part of that is, you know, when you get to the temple, there were certain things you had to do to be able to enter the temple. You had to be clean. You had to follow these certain uh, deals and you brought a sacrifice. All right. Well, there was temple life and then there was home life. And those were two separate things. But time and time again, Israel had been rebuked by God for the way that they had treated their temple. And so he was very angry with them. In fact, in Amos 5, we see that God tells his people that uh, he despises their worship, that he will not accept their offerings, and he will not listen to their songs. You see, they had forgot what the tent of meeting was all about. And they had turned their temple worship into a show, a religious parade without substance. Now, and we look at this Jewish understanding of the temple, uh, it had two purposes, and one was to inspire reverence. And the temple was very massive and very big. Um, we see this a lot of times in some churches where churches are built to inspire reverence. That's what they do it. And the second reason was that it was a conduit for God's presence. And typically in that in the camp, they, they landed on one of these two positions. It was either it, it inspired reverence or it was a conduit for God's presence. Well, the thing is, is that either one of these ideas, they missed the point. You see, because uh, when God gave us the example of this, it was in a tent of meaning. It wasn't a temple. It was a tent. And the tent had a meaning because the tent was the way in which God's people would commune with God. Now, Moses was an intercessor who would go into that tent of meeting on behalf of the people. But the tent was about God having communion, dwelling with his people. And this was the place at which he did this. Now, this wasn't a conduit for God's presence, and it wasn't to inspire reverence. This was about communion. And so this tent was set up, and they would go with them, and they would follow the tent. And so it was the center of their life. In fact, when they set up their um when they would set up their camp, they would set it up around the uh, tent of meeting in the shape of a cross. Pretty interesting. But you see, the temple for the Jewish person became the means to salvation. It's where the sacrifices were made. And when no temple meant no sacrifices and no sacrifices meant no salvation. And so temple life was pretty important. And so all the Jews would would come to Jerusalem during this time and they would meet at the temple. And so now Jesus is coming in and he's clearing out this temple. Now there's a couple of things that's happening. One is that Jesus is declaring his authority over the temple. Um, this is quite unique and um, you may not catch this. He goes in, but I think the clue for us seeing this is in how the leaders respond to him. And they come to him by, they ask by on what authority, by what authority are you doing these things? Do you, you know, whose authority are you coming here and, and shaking everything up and changing everything up? You see, it was very common in that time that a rabbi would, um, different rabbis would raise themselves up and they would have disciples and followers and different things. So Jesus being a rabbi wasn't a problem. Jesus having disciples and followers weren't a problem. Jesus' teachings weren't a problem because they all had teachings that were different and, you know, they had different nuances to that. 
But Jesus coming in and establishing himself as the authority over the temple life changed things because they put that authority in the Sanhedrin, in that council of, of leaders. And so here he is, he's opposing that. Well, in Hebrews 7, um, the author of Hebrews gives us a beautiful window into the, Jesus as coming into this role as the priest and changing things up. You see, if perfection under the law was obtainable, then what need would there be for another priest to arise? But what happened is, is perfection under the law is not obtainable. And it, the Bible even tells us that the law didn't exist to bring perfection, but it existed to expose our brokenness, expose our weakness, to expose the fact that we cannot fulfill the mandates of the law. In fact, um, in the Jewish attempt to do that, they would create new laws to try to define the specifics of what that meant. Because you could say, well, I, you know, I followed the law. I didn't kill anybody. But, you know, then they would look at the nuances of what does that mean, you know? Um, and so there were different things to that that they would try to help clarify that by adding new laws. And so it shows us and proves to us that the old law would not allow us perfection. And so because of that, there needed to be a new law. And the way you have a new law is you have to have a new priest. And so when that priesthood and when that law becomes ineffective to do it, a new one needs to rise up in its place. And here is Jesus coming in and letting us, revealing to us that this is what's about to happen. And that when there's a change in the priesthood, there's a change in the laws. And the law was weak in bringing perfection. We just kind of talked about the law of Moses. And that's what they were under at that time, the law of Moses. And so the priests were not good officiators of this law because they were subject to the same weaknesses of the people. You see, the priests had to offer sacrifices before for themselves before they could offer sacrifices for the people. And there were constantly sacrifices going on. You know, another way that they were obsolete in being able to uphold the law is that they died. And there were so many of them. And there were so many of them because they died. And so you would need new ones all the time. And so because the amount of sacrifices that were needed, you need many people. And for the fact that they died, one priest could not fulfill the, the duties because he died. And so here now we have Jesus is the one who is not made priest because of an oath. You see, when they came into office, they took an oath and they were in office because of their family lineage. And so what made a priest was he was born in the right family and he took an oath. And so here is Jesus who has not come in because he's an oath. In fact, he's there because God declared him that or because that he was born into the right family. So he wasn't born a Levi. He was born of the tribe of Judah. He wasn't born of the tribe of Levi. And so, but Jesus now becomes our priest on the basis of power and an indestructible life. Now, this is beautifully stated in Hebrews 7. So if you want to know more about that, go and read Hebrews chapter 7. But it's power, not how we're born that gives Jesus the ability. And so the, their question was, under what authority do you have? Well, Jesus constantly demonstrated that authority, the authority that he had the power over life and that life was, he was the author of life. And that's what gave him the authority. You see, but Jesus uh, is a better hope and he, ha and he's been and he has been introduced 
and he's a way in through which we may now draw near to God. You see, the, the original purpose of the tent of meeting was so, so that we could draw near to the presence of God, so that we could be in communion with God. And now Jesus becomes a better hope for us in that he introduces a way. And remember, he would say that I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Like he is the way now through which we may draw near to God. You know, on one hand, you know, the former commandments uh, is set aside because of its weakness and its uselessness. I mean, it's useless in doing that which which it was say to do, which is make us right with God. And, you know, the for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, we have a better hope and it's introduced and it's a way through which we draw near to God. And this makes Jesus a better grantor uh, and of a better covenant. And so as he comes into the temple to clean out the temple, he is demonstrating that he is, that he is setting, establishing a new priesthood and that he is coming in with a new set of laws. Now, we understand that in Ezekiel that these things will be written on our hearts now, not on stone, but on our hearts, and that he would do a great work in our hearts. And in Hebrew, uh, Hebrews chapter 9, we actually read this, that Jesus is, the, is greater and a more perfect tent. And that's a reference back to the tent of meeting. And so this ties the idea that Jesus now is the tent of meeting and Jesus now becomes our, our point in which we can now commune with God. And he's a better version. He's a better hope because he is perfect, because he demonstrated power over death, power over um, sin. And he shows us he is the author of life and that he raised the dead. Now we saw that. And then ultimately in himself, raising himself and paying the atoning price for our sin. And we'll kind of get into that in another day. But today we just want to look at this temple and what it means. You see, without the temple, there was no sacrifice. That part they had right. But the temple wasn't a conduit for God's presence. It wasn't uh, to inspire reverence. It was to create communion between man and God. And now, Jesus, as he comes in and he clears out the temple and he sends all those away, he makes a clarifying statement. And now he tells us that this, ha- that this will be a house of prayer. And the temple was the center of Jewish life. It was where God's people would come to meet with him. That, that was the intent. But it's more than just meeting with God. To the sons of Abraham, this was salvation. They couldn't have about it. So Jesus comes in and he says the defining characteristic of the temple should be prayer. It shouldn't be sacrifice. Well, why is that? Well, because he is the sacrifice and he makes the sacrifice and his sacrifice is complete and it's done. It's one and done. It's, It's full. There's nothing lacking in his sacrifice. So there's no more need for sacrifice. And so what we have is to get the opportunity to get back to what the original purpose of the tent was, and that is communion with God. And our prayer becomes the way in which we commune with God. You say, Jesus said that this should be the defining characteristic of his temple. Now, the beauty is, is uh, as he kind of moves on, he, he lets us know that the temple isn't stones. It isn't brick. It isn't mortar. The temple is his people. We become the the temple of God. And if the defining characteristic of his temple should be prayer, then that means the defining characteristics of his church should be prayer. That means the defining characteristic of believers should be that of prayer. You see, Christ came to reveal to us 
that the tent of meeting was about him, that he would provide communion with God through him, that we approach him through faith, not through tradition or religious ceremony, and that sacrifices are costly and he would pay the ultimate price. You see, he would be our high priest and the church would be his new temple, people, not stones. In Ephesians 2, Paul writes that we are his workmanship. We're his, we're his raw materials, so to speak. We are what makes up the temple. So today, as we walk into this Holy Week, I, I want to challenge you in this. One, is prayer the defining characteristic of your life? Has it become what defines you? When you find yourself in a place of need or shortness or longing, do you respond in prayer? When you find yourself in many situations, is your first response prayer or is it another outlet? Is it another way? Secondly is, you know, when you look to what your life has shaped life and how you live and how you manage your family, is your first recourse prayer or is it something else? You see, the defining character of our life should be that of prayer. So I challenge you today. Make sure you square away some time, get by yourself and spend some meaningful moments in prayer. Hey guys, thanks for tuning in today. I look forward to talking to you more. We'll see you tomorrow.